Welcome back to the show, everyone. It's Dina Calmetti here and Susan Davis with Jesus 24-7. And today we have a very special series to introduce, and that is Daniel for Beginners. Isn't that right, Susan? Well, that's right, Dina. And we're back for more, right? <laughs> yes. I think this kind of goes hand in hand with the series we did on Revelation for Beginners. And I think it'll be a nice adjunct to that. We had some viewers request for it. So here we are, right? That's right. We had a couple of you make some comments on our Rumble channels and possibly even on YouTube. And I think I even got an email from someone that said, hey, can you do a series on the book of Daniel? So here you go. That's what we're going to do. So get ready, get your pen ready, get your Bibles out. We'll actually have the scriptures on the screen here. But if you know, if you want to have your Bible, your pen, some paper, take some notes, maybe get a snack, cup of coffee, get settled. (laughs) Get settled for the long haul. Okay, well, I want to get into this book of Daniel because we must. And because we have a lot of groundwork to lay with chapter one. And Daniel for Beginners is exactly that. Just like the Revelation for Beginners, this program is very much going to cover Daniel from a beginner standpoint. And so to do that, we need to do kind of some setup work to kind of make it more understandable. And you know, Dina, this isn't your grandfather's Sunday school class, okay? And I want to just say that because, I mean, I think everybody's been in a Sunday school class where they talk about Daniel in the lion's den, right? And we kind of have, that's when we think of Daniel, we think of that, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm here to tell you there's a whole lot more going on in this book of Daniel than just a few lions hanging out you know it's a great story for kids but it's also a prophetic book for the future of both the gentiles and the jews right that's right actually this could be one of the more significant books in the bible as far as our future is concerned and just like the book of revelation dina we look backwards into the old testament and we look forward into the future and we take from those things and we take from all over the bible to understand revelation well the same thing applies here we take from the past and we also look into the future and take from the future of the bible to get a a really good understanding of what's going on here in this book so we want to set the stage for this and it's really an adventure. It's an adventure, it's history, and there's a lot going on here. So let's take a look at what happened first. We're approximately in the year 605 BC. So that takes us 600 years before Jesus Christ shows up, okay? Mm-hmm. So that, that gives you kind of the date and time. We're going way back there. This is way back. But what has happened at this point is there's this guy out there, and his name is Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm sure maybe a lot of people have heard that name before, right? Oh, yeah. He was the king that went crazy. Right. Exactly. But he's he's a big player in the book of Daniel, apart from Daniel himself. And so to set this up, we have to understand the time of Daniel. And what we're looking at is 
the Babylonians, which was a group of people in the Middle East about the latter part of the 7th century BC. And we find them in a battle or a clash with the Egyptians. Now, remember the Egyptians? And they were a mighty warrior nation. And so this kind of gives you the understanding of how old this book is. We find Egyptians and Babylonians fighting around the summer of 605 BC at a Babylonian town of Carchemish. Okay? And what happens is basically Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar, wins this struggle between them and Egypt, sending the Egyptians off in, you know, and they're basically have lost their battle. And the next thing we know is there is an unguarded territory of the Palestinian area. And I want to mention at this point, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, he is the prince. He's a prince at this point in time. He's not the king. And so he's out fighting wars and he wins this war with Egypt. And so he sees the Palestine area as open for taking control of. And so he moves into the city of Jerusalem. And that is, you know, kind of where we are at this point in history. Now, you've probably heard of something called the Times of the Gentiles. Oh, yeah. It's a, yes. And so that's what is so significant about Daniel here is that when Nebuchadnezzar, who's just the prince at this point of Babylon, he comes in and takes over the area and the times of the Gentiles begins as he moves in and takes over Jerusalem. And this is the beginning of that part of the world, Jerusalem, in the hands of the Gentiles, leading up to all the way into the point of June 5th through the 10th of 1967, in which there was a six-day war. And that's when the Jewish nation came back into existence, into being. And that's when the Jews recovered the ownership of that area uh, for themselves. And so it was, get this, a 2,553-year gap that the Gentiles were over the area of Jerusalem before the Jews took it over. And so it was from this point in time that we're in right now, that we're talking about today, that that was the beginning of, you know, a long siege of the Gentiles over what is known as, you know, land of the Jews, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what that is one thing that's definitely key point about this and to understand this. But let's go ahead and take a look at this study and we're going to read and Dina's going to be great and put these scriptures up and we're going to read along. So Daniel uh, chapter one, verse one, it says in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Okay, and that's God with a little g. All right. The question here is, why 
did God allow this area, Jerusalem, to be overtaken from the king of Judah? At this time. Well, to understand this, Dina, we have to go back into Second Kings, okay? Mm-hmm. All the way back to Second Kings chapter 24. And so I'm just going to just read a little bit of this because you've really got to understand this. And it says, in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him heads of Chaldees and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the children of Amoran and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servants, the prophets. So what we see here is Jehoiakim and his son were evil. And they did what God did not want done. And he allowed this to happen because they did evil in the sight of God. And so God took his hand of protection off of that area and released them to into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had just taken over Egypt. He had just won a war with Egypt. And so he was in the area, and he decided to go ahead and take over Jerusalem. But no no doubt it was God who put it on his heart to do it. It was literally God that allowed this, and it was punishment because the Israelites had become so evil. So this was a form of punishment. And the punishment would be that they would be taken hostage into the land of the Babylonians, which the Babylonian kingdom was taken over by several other kings over time. The Jews would be held hostage in this area of the world for 70 years. It was a 70-year stint that they were taken into. And I want to mention that while Nebuchadnezzar was out doing the business of his father in, in all these battles, his father, who is Nabopolassar, actually died during this time. And so Nebuchadnezzar has just taken over Jerusalem, and he has filled his packs, basically, with all of the riches and treasure and vessels, precious vessels, and everything that was in the temple of the Jews and the king. And so he's not coming back empty-handed. He's coming back with treasures and and all of the things that they used in their worship, all the, the holy items of God. And it was really just a total in you know in-your-face to God action, okay? Now, I want to mention that these precious vessels and everything that he took, he took something else with him. And he took human beings with him, quite a few, actually. So he took a lot of people out of the area back to Babylon with him. And among those people is the character Daniel. Now, Daniel would have been a teenager at this point, Okay, so he was quite young. And I think this is actually a really fantastic story for people who are young people, because this really showcases Daniel's integrity as a leader, a mentor to kings. He was also a friend of God. And people think, well, you know, they don't think much about what 
teenagers are today, you know, and, and, but I've got to tell you that if you look at the life of Daniel, he lived a pretty important life and he started it at a very young age. And so he was among the people that were taken out of the area of Judah and moved into, it says, the land of Shinar in verse 2. And that means, uh, that's talking about the Babylonian area. Mm -hmm. So Nebuchadnezzar probably had about his father dying, but at the same time, he's coming back after winning a major war campaign. And he's also taken over another area, which is Jerusalem. He's absconded with their best items for their god, God Jehovah, and he's taken their best people. He discerned that he wanted to take some of the best people he could with him. And so he arrives, not empty-handed, but with quite an entourage, and... Like I said, he's got several notches on his belt from a war campaign. And interestingly enough, I have to say this, he's coming back to be crowned king because his father has now passed away. So he's probably pretty, like, how do I put it, full of himself at this point. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, if you can picture it, I mean, he's probably, I would say, quite, you know, heady at this point. But nevertheless, let's go forward, and it says... Here in verse 3, and the king spake with Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. So children in whom was no blemish, but well favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach, and learning, and the tongue of the Chaldeans. Okay, the Chaldeans, this is the language of the elite and privileged class of Babylon. So if you hear about Chaldeans, they are the privileged religious class of Babylon. And so Daniel would have had to come from his situation and into an area of the world into his people's enemy Babylon and he's forced into learning their language and it's really you know survival of the fittest sort of thing at this point for him but we go on to five and it says and the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank so nourishing them three years that at the end of thereof they might stand before the king and six says now among these were the children of Judah. And we find in the story, we meet Daniel, and then we meet his three friends, which is Hananiah, Mishael, and, and Azariah. And these are the three boys that join with Daniel. And my assumption is they were approximately the same age. We go into verse 7. Unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. So we've heard these names before, probably in Sunday school class, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm -hmm. And Belteshazzar is Daniel. So those were names. Um, so immediately, the king renames these guys from Israel that he's taken hostage, and I, you know, I think that's really kind of a power play 
over these guys. What do you think, Dina? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So it's really kind of, you know, slavery, right? It certainly is. And so I want to mention something uh, here. It kind of troubled me that Daniel and the boys were all kind of being watched over by not one, but two of the king's top eunuchs. We've got Ashpenaz is the master of the eunuchs. And then we have someone else under him who is overseas. The voice is also, you know, a prince of the eunuchs. And at one point, it troubled me to the point where I had to ask the question, could it be that they were put in with these guys and that they too were had, be, had to become eunuchs? And the answer is yes. Okay, Dina? Mm. And here's how we know. Let me read the scripture for you. It can be found in among the section in Isaiah. If we go back to the book of Isaiah and we go to chapter 39 of Isaiah, and let me talk about this. Uh, this is the section is about Hezekiah, and Hezekiah uh, was king over Israel at this point as well. And I have to tell you that he did something he shouldn't have done, and God punishes him for it. So. If I can, let me just read this, because this is going to explain a whole lot about some of the predicament that Daniel finds himself in. And it says, at the time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. Okay, so Hezekiah predated Jehoiakim, the king at that time, way back there. And you see, they were having interaction with Babylon back then, even during the time of King Hezekiah here in Isaiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. So Hezekiah had become ill, I I think you know, and God saved him. He was going to die, and then God gave him some extra time. Mm -hmm. I remember that. Right. And so it says here, and Hezekiah was glad of them and shewed them the house of his precious things and the silver and gold and the spaces and the precious ointment and all the house of armor and all that was found in his treasure. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah shewed them not. And so then came Isaiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men and from whence? came they unto thee and hezekiah said they are come from a far country unto me even from babylon so he's having a talk with the prophet isaiah here that when they came to visit he showed him the whole thing he showed him everything he didn't leave anything out he he gave them insight about all the jewels and everything that you know he had in his possession and on here it says in verse four then He said, he, what have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, all that is in mine house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shewed them. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, said the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt begat, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs. 
in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord, which thou hast spoken. And he said, Moreover, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. Okay, so he's told by God himself, right here, through Isaiah, he tells, God himself tells King Hezekiah that you messed up, but down the road, these people from Babylon are going to come and they're going to take it all. And not only that, they're going to take away the sons that come through Hezekiah, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And that right there is talking about Daniel. Mm -hmm. So isn't that interesting? Very interesting. The Bible is just so amazing. And so we can see now that um, something probably a lot of people didn't think about before is that these young men were immediately made into eunuchs, most likely, according to the scripture. So they had a rough toe, right? So they were part of that whole culture within that kingdom. And this is really serious, okay? All right, well, I want to move forward into the next section. So we want to take a look, because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, Let's look at Scripture 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than children which are of your sort? Then shall you make me endanger my head to the king. Well, then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenance be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat, and as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in the matter and proved them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their countenance appeared fairer in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Then Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. The Bible is just full of deeper meaning, okay? What I just read was kind of a surface story, and if you just look at it, you would just go, okay, well, that's, okay, I get that they were brought in there, they were given a certain kind of food, they refused to eat it, you know, that goes on. But there's a lot more deeper meaning here, Dina, and I want to discuss it. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, if you look at verse 8, it says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now it's interesting, God repeats himself. Have you ever noticed that, Dina? He does. Yes, he does. And so when he's trying to make a point, he repeats himself, and that's the same in this particular passage. Twice it says that Daniel refused to defile himself from eating meat and wine. Well, you kind of are wondering, well, is he on a diet? Or what is he, what exactly would he not want steak and wine? Okay. And it says that he chose instead to eat pulse. 
okay? And for anybody who doesn't know what pulse is, I'll tell you. It's beans, Dina. <laughs> so Daniel was swapping steak for beans, okay? Not steak and beans, but beans for steak, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, for wine, they requested water. So instead of steak and wine, they were drinking water and, and eating beans, so that sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? Well, it does, but it's healthier well, if you think yeah. about it. Right. Okay, so here's the real reason why he would not eat steak and, and drink wine and what the defilement was regarding. It was about the fact that this food in Babylon was dedicated to and offered to the Babylonian god Marduk, and Daniel knew it. And that was their practice. That How do we know? Because that was their practice back then. And this went straight up against Daniel's belief. And we see this in Exodus. In chapter 24 and 5, it says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord God, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So Daniel knew his scripture. Okay, and he knew that if he partook of this food, he was going to be in pretty big trouble with God. And this is one thing we learn about Daniel throughout this whole study and the whole book of Daniel is that he's a man of integrity. In fact, I can tell you for sure that I there is no scripture that we know of in which, you know, evil motives can be found in Daniel. He's a man of total integrity. Mm-hmm. In fact, he has a fascinating life because he is almost a mentor and friend to multiple kings in, you know, his in his lifetime, which says a whole lot about the man, right? Yeah. And so he's like, you know, at this point he's refusing to let anything pass over his lips that was dedicated to Marduk. Now, I want to talk about Marduk because it's important that we do. I mean, like I said, this isn't your grandfather's Sunday school class. We're going to dig deep and we're going to see exactly here who Marduk was and why it is so significant that Daniel said, no, not going there, okay? And I mean, I don't think he was rude or anything like, no, I don't want anything to do with your God. But he was like, hey, you know, just try us. Let's try the beans and and see how we do, you know. So he was very bright, I think, you know, a very bright young man as well. So who is Marduk? Okay. well, I think you'd be fascinated to learn that he's the patron deity of Babylon. Okay, that means he was the top god, little g, of Babylon. And I want to say that he was the Greek equivalent to Marduk was Zeus, okay? Mm-hmm. And Jupiter for the Roman Empire. Now, there's something to be said about idols and gods of other cultures. And we know from scripture, and let me pull this scripture up. Again, it's important that we know our scripture. And we know for a fact that in Deuteronomy 32, 16, 17, it said, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently 
whom your fathers had never dreaded. And, you know, that passage associates pagan gods with demons and warns God's people not to be involved with idolatry. And then we go on into Leviticus 17.7. I know Dino's going to put this up here. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. We continue to see in Matthew 4.9, and the demons teach false doctrine in order to deceive. And 1 Timothy 4.1 in Paul's writings says those who worship false gods are wittingly or unwittingly pledging their allegiance to evil spirits who desire to usurp God's rightful place in our hearts. Okay, so this is very, very important. And in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, it says, That is, demons and their deceit have no true power over us. Any power they wield pales in comparison with the power of Christ. Okay, so I just wanted to throw those scriptures about because, you know, I want to point out that when you're worshiping other gods, little g, there are demon spirits connected to those gods, okay? And we have done studies before, and I want to bring that up also because it's so important that we get a real important look at this. In Revelation, when we studied, you know, the, the book of Revelation, we came across a situation in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. Now, what was that section about? That was about the seven churches, where Jesus is describing the seven churches. No, they weren't denominational churches. They were churches described by Jesus. So he gets to a particular church he calls Pergamon. And that church, actually, well, it was in the city of Pergamon, for one thing. And uh, Jesus refers to that area as the seat of Satan. Now, what would have been the seat of Satan? It was the temple of Zeus. So who is Zeus? Well, he was the main mythological god of the Greek gods. And so he was a character with supernatural characteristics who was not God, and therefore he was Satan. And this applies to you know, anything, and anyone is considered supernatural who is not God. And so we look at this, how do we know that this whole thing is of the occult? Well, all we have to do is we have to look in Revelation 19.10, and we go back there and we see that John fell at, at the feet to worship an angel. And the angel goes on to say, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus and worship God for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. And he does the same thing again, twice. He does this twice. <laughs> and both times the angel signifies that he should not worship him, but he should worship God alone. And we see this later in Daniel. Daniel himself does the same thing. He sees an angel and begins to worship him. And the angel says, no, don't do it. Now, what is God saying here with all of this? Well, for one thing, we see in Pergamon, they were worshiping Zeus who was the top god of the Greek empire. And it was in the temple of the seat of Satan, the temple of Zeus is one and the same. And God is referring to that mythological person as Satan. And so in this same situation with Daniel, we find Satan showing up again as this character Marduk, okay, who was the patron 
deity of Babylon. So he was pretty much the same kind of evil that we find Zeus, who is over the Greeks, and Jupiter, who is over the Romans. And essentially, these gods, like all the scriptures I read before, having to do with any time you worship a god, you're essentially worshiping a demonic spirit, evil spirit. So we can conclude that Marduk, as is Zeus, as is Jupiter, is all just another version of Satan, okay? And to, to make this even more interesting, we can look at what is the symbolic animal that we find Marduk, if we looked, if we were to go into Babylon, if we were to go back into time, and we would see Marduk, we would see a animal dragon. Isn't that interesting? Very interesting indeed. The dragon represented Marduk. Now, who does that remind you of, Dina? The enemy. Right, right. And Marduk is later known as Bel, and so we've heard of, you know, that is Bel, but it is derived from Baal. And so Baal worship is something that Israelites in the past, when they went astray from God, they would get involved in Baal worship. And we find that Baal worship had a lot to do with uh, things like killing babies and that sort of thing. And this is really what Daniel was facing during his time there. Uh, Marduk had a temple, which was a ziggurat, and it was the model for the biblical tower of Babel. And here is another example of Marduk and of Baal, you know, and that is bull, a bull. And this was also the Canaanite god. So you see all these ties and connections to what we see is Satan was all involved here. So I want to just say that I want Dina to put some clips up for me about an event that took place not so long ago that they are now bringing back this bull worship. And it took place in, I think it was some sort of a uh, soccer or Olympic event, and they had a bull, and everybody was worshiping it. Did you recall that, Dina? Yes. Well, this is, you know, shades of what Daniel was dealing with back then, in all the way back here in Babylonia, is now coming back into play today. And to me, that's just incredible. Well, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Absolutely not. Yeah. And here it is. It's it's resurfacing again. And so that's really incredible. Now, I want to just mention quickly something else that was amazing. And something I want you to note is we talk about the, the fact that God gave Daniel favor in this passage. And it so reminds me, Dina, of... Other characters in the Bible, and I'll just mention them really quickly. In Genesis 39, 1 through 6, we see Potiphar in Joseph's life, and God gave Joseph favor in the household of Potiphar. And then we see Joseph getting favor with the prison guard, also in Genesis 39, verse 21. We see Esther in the Bible in Esther 2, verses 9 and 12 through 18 receiving favor from Haggai, the eunuch of the king, the chief eunuch. And then we also see Mary in the Bible, you know, having favor with God at that point when she is told by the angel that she'll carry the baby Jesus. So God does give favor, and he did with uh, Daniel, which is really amazing. I would say these are all very similar. Now we want to go forward, and we'll just read this, and we'll close out this chapter. As for these four children, God gave 
them knowledge and skill and learning and wisdom. Daniel had understanding on all visions and dreams. And now at the end of the days, the king had said he should bring them in. Then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king commanded with them, among them all, were found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdoms and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in his realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. And so he had staying power because King Cyrus comes much, much later. So we're talking about a spread of time between Daniel as being a 17-year-old or a teenager all the way up to Daniel being an 80-year-old man. That was the kind of staying power he had with the various kings that came and went throughout that kingdom. And that's what we're going to continue to talk about in the coming chapters is about Daniel's staying power with these kings that had rule over the area and how God kept him afloat through all these things. And then also his amazing prophecies, visions, dreams, and what have you that foretell our future, not just anyone's future, but even our future. So this is such a fascinating book, and there's a lot to be said about it. But we kind of wanted to set the stage on this first chapter to understand a little bit more about the life of Daniel. And it's an incredible chapter. It is. It is. The whole and book so is. Much more. Oh, yeah. We just, you just scratch the surface, Susan. Oh, I know. This is only the beginning. <laughs> well, thank you so much for um, bringing this anointed teaching to all of us, Susan. Thank you to all the listeners who have tuned in. Now, I'm going to set up a separate playlist for um, Daniel for Beginners. So you'll be able to find that on our YouTube channel. Also on our Rumble channels and on our Jesus 24-7 Facebook page, as well as in podcasts. So Apple, Google, um, Anchor, and Spotify. So we'd love to hear from all of you. So if you have any comments, please leave this below the video we'd love to hear your comments and susan is there anything else you'd like to add no thanks dina for all of your hard work on this project and we certainly hope that everybody hangs in with us because we've just scratched the surface of this book there's a lot in here yeah there's so much and it's it's so you actually can see god in this book like in all the books of the bible but the way he protects these these boys, you know, it's just it's just so endearing. And how he uses Daniel with these kings, with the elite, it's just incredible. It, you know, God can use anybody, and he uses these teenagers greatly. So, with all of that said, um, thank you again, Susan. Thank you everybody for watching, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. God bless.